howdy-doody little buckaroo. To you, like animals, we sure do. So come on down to the weekly meeting of the Animal Fan Club. The cuckoo clock is proclaiming that it's creature o'clock. So ring that buzzer. It sounds like a lion roar. And open the door to join us for the 22nd meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I'm Meredith the Tender Spring Lamb. And I'm Obligate Frugivore Mike. And we meet here every week at the clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station. To talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow! So saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom animalia. Oh, Mike, here we are again. Our energy split between two locales. That's true, Meredith. Yeah, we are doing another remote quarantine episode special COVID-19 from the Dalmatian Station East to the Dalmatian Station original location. Yes. And uh, here we are. Here we are. Through the power of the internet. It's like um, we're in the same boat as all the podcasters right now and all the news people who are having to do everything from home and encountering new challenges and finding new solutions. (laughs) Look at us go. It's true. Yeah. And I'm excited to announce we are not using Zoom. We are not using FaceTime. We are not using any sort of Google Hangout or anything like that. Yeah. We are instead using the Brand Clubby exclusive Anacamda, which is a web conferencing service run by Anacondas. Squamates are good at many things, let that be said. And not least of all, bringing people closer together through the power of video chat. And reptile ingenuity. Yeah, it's the hemipene energy. It's that hemipene energy. It makes the world go round, you know? Would you say that squamates are like the engineers of the non-human animal world? I would say that the most accomplished engineers, in, in terms of structural engineers, like mechanical, civil, structural engineers, they're moles and other burrowing creatures, ants, termites, they're very accomplished. I would say that the anacondas are very great at technology, though. It's counterintuitive because you wonder how they hold the soldering iron. (laughs) They're actually incredible hackers, and they are really great programmers, too. Yeah, I think they type very fast with the tail. Mm-hmm. It's true, and I mean that forked tongue—it's—it's it's like two fingers. Yeah, definitely. I mean, <laughs> well, Meredith, I just want to get right into this. Have you watched any of the Tiger King show that we were texting about yesterday? Yes. So I watched one episode. I just watched the first episode, so I essentially have like the setting under my belt. But in terms well, you, of you like the rising, what you think you have the setting? Okay, maybe not. <laughs> But in terms of, like, the rising action and the climax and then the, like, resolution, conclusion, I'm not sure what's happening. I know a little bit about this because I heard about this story months and months ago on, like, true crime podcasts. My sister said that she heard a podcast about it as well. Yeah. So it's been in the ether. So I've been aware of this guy. So I was so when I saw that advertised on Netflix, 
I was like, oh yeah, that that sounds about right. Even just the first episode in, I was just like, what alternate dimension is this happening in? It's one of those things, those weird pockets of the United States that you just would have no idea exist and you're just watching with mouth agape. Like, who are these people? It does kind of go through these different stages where you think that it's a Christopher Guest film. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And there's moments where stylistically they really lean into that. Uh-huh. Then there's one episode, I think it's like episode four, where they introduce like six new characters and each one is just more ridiculous than the last. It yeah. leads you to ask a series of questions of like, why the hell is any of this happening? <laughs> and they talk about stuff in Vegas that could only ever happen in Vegas. Yeah. Just all these bizarre, shady, backwards dealings. You know, you Ugh. just get a real confused sense of everything. And then one thing that I, that really struck me is they talk, well, no, Never mind. I can't go any deeper than this until you've watched it. Maybe next week, Meredith. Yeah. Next week, I'll have it all under my belt. I did take some notes, though, on the first episode about things that I found funny. Okay. Hit me with them. Just in the first episode alone, I was like, my notebook was sitting on the table. And I was like, I just got to write some of this down because I'm not going to remember it. First of all, the gift shop, (laughs) the Joe Exotic sex gel, the whole line of skincare. The sex gel was a very joyous touch wasn't it i love that it's called sex gel do you think it's water based or do you think it's like silicone based based? i have a lot of questions about that yeah and i mean like is and i was thinking for like the skincare line did he like find this stuff is there some sort of like cheap just generic skincare distributor where he can just like buy up a whole bunch of it and slap his labels on it well meredith of all the people with my last name that you could be asking about this. I will say that I am the wrong one, but I can point you to the right one because you can get a logo printed on quite literally anything that you would ever want or ever imagine that it could be printed on. And there are companies that will distribute it. They will warehouse it. They will ship it to you. They will take orders online and fulfill those orders. So it's really just anything. We could we could have an entire Meredith Jurgens line of of products in terms of the actual branding and marketing of it. Mm -hmm. And we could just use existing lotions or skin creams or exfoliants willy-nilly. Oh my gosh. So Brand Clubby is not far off from actually starting to appear on the shelves. Meredith, Brand Clubby is real. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm sorry. I told you. I'm just, there's like other dimensions at work right now. I'm just losing my goddamn mind. Okay. There was just one other quote that I found to be a little bit upsetting the doc antle guy he's like i'm a guy in love with big cats and has them love him back cats has love him back that doesn't seem consensual at all he has them love him back well i think it's noteworthy that there are these aspects of control and dominance and this kind of alpha male chad vibe yes amongst the sort of cat leaders like the docs Mm -hmm. and the joe exotics and even some other people that you haven't met yet Mm -hmm. i think there's something that attracts a constellation of personality traits to these large cats yeah already i just see like red flag after red flag about exotic animal markets and it's just meredith we've only just begun i'm so sorry i didn't watch more no it's great i'm very busy (laughs) i did relate a little bit to carol baskin and like loving cats so much and wanting to wear all things with like cats on it but i've clearly gone a different way in my life than she has yeah 
I just don't want to give anything else away. Fair. I would like to say on a quick serious note. Sure. Let's just pull it in for a second. Sure. You know, we are in the middle of a health crisis. We have to acknowledge this. Yes. And that friends of friends are dying. I'm seeing that on Facebook, as I'm sure you are. Yes. We are in this epicenter. This is only just the beginning. This is a serious period of grief that we're entering. Yes. I think it's important to talk about this, but I also think it's important to live otherwise. Mm-hmm. Since the most that we can do is isolate ourselves. Right now, most of us, that's true. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to that end, I've been playing a lot of ukulele. I've been Zooming with friends and family and reconnecting with a lot of people, which I think is a benefit to this. Mm-hmm. I think that we're doing these video calls now and hopefully we get to see each other more that way. Old friends, family members. I accompanied a dance class via Zoom, which was crazy. Whoa, that's awesome. Yes. And there are birds that are very active outside of my window every night, which is really pleasant. Spring is here. Yeah, spring has sprung for sure. And every day at 3 p.m., the Cincinnati Zoo does a live stream of one of its animals. So we've gotten to meet giraffes and penguins and the bear cat and the hippos and some sloths and all these other animals. So I just think it's really great that there are organizations that are finding a way to take this terrible situation and to adapt to it and to still live and and love and laugh. Live, laugh, love. (laughs) That's what I'm really... This was a giant live, laugh, love commercial. (laughs) But I just think that's important. I feel like I have to say that. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for grounding us in the situation that we are in and shouting out some of the more positive silver linings that are coming out of what is otherwise a really terrible, terrible situation. And it's just, we're at the very front of it. This is the honeymoon stage. To be honest, it's very scary. It is. It is. So with all the spare time, I've been learning a tremendous about about animals, and I'm excited to share that with everybody. Mm-hmm. And. I get to go first, so I'm ready to kick it off if you are. I am so ready. So excited. Ready? Okay. Texana you. Texana we. Texana who? Texana me. Kingdom. Animalia. Duh, this isn't a plant show. Philo. Cordata. Spine time. Class. Mammalia. I like being a mammal. Order. Chiroptera, welcome to the bat cave. Family. Rhinolophidae, horseshoe bats. Genus. Rhinolophus, the only extant genus. Species. Cynicus, the Chinese rufus horseshoe bat, a bat of least concern who's concerning all of us. Yeah, I've heard about these rhino bats. Yeah. Which bat did you do again? I did the old world fruit bat. Yeah, Brent Huser, world-famous old-world fruit bat. Don't you call me by my name. I'm sitting right here. Don't you ever call me old-world fruit bat ever again. You know that's my government name. How dare you? Where my fruit bat's at? Raise a wing. So that was a mega bat, right? Yes, that was a mega bat. Are we still in mega bat territory or are we talking micro bats? We're talking micro bat. (laughs) So... Unlike the megabats, microbats are not obligate frugivores. So right. I was bamboozling you by saying earlier that I was an obligate frugivore because that's I'm not talking about an obligate frugivore now. Obligate frugivore means that they only eat fruits to the exclusion of other things. Obligate right. frugivore. <laughs> 
as previously mentioned, we're in this global health crisis and our homes are all under lockdown. Mm -hmm. We don't know exactly where this virus came from, but there are rumors and some anecdotal evidence. Very similar viruses have been found in bats. Yep. And there's also belief that the pangolin, our scaly anteater friend, was involved in the transmission of this because of the animal trade. Mm-hmm. Scientists really aren't sure about where this originated. The only way to know that is if they find a live virus in a suspected species, which is very hard to do. Right. Of course. But viruses that are extremely similar to this virus have been seen in these Chinese horseshoe bats. Mm-hmm. There's this interesting CNN article about this that I encourage everyone to read. And one of the notes is a quote from Kate Jones, who's the chair of ecology and biodiversity at the University of College London. And she says, we are increasing transport of animals for medicine, for pets, for food at a scale that we have never done before. We are also destroying their habitat into landscapes that are more human dominated. Animals are mixing in weird ways that have never happened before. So in a wet market, you're going to have a load of animals in cages on top of each other. So it's important that we hashtag don't blame the bat. Right. Because it's really human activity that's putting these bat populations where these viruses would develop or incubate in close contact with humans. Right. The aforementioned CNN article generally references Chinese horseshoe bats. So mm-hmm. when I Googled Chinese horseshoe bats, I found that there was one called the Chinese Rufus horseshoe bat. Mm-hmm. I love a Rufus pelage. Rufus is like a red brown color. Mm-hmm. I kept thinking about Rufus when I was watching the Red Panda live stream from the Cincinnati Zoo. Because they're like super Rufus, but apparently that comes from like something. It's not their natural color, but it's like the sloth kind of turning green with algae. It's something having to do with where they live and stuff that accumulates in their coats, I think. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Or like flamingos. Exactly. So I can't remember if it was something in their environment or something they ate. I want to say it was like sloth-like and that it was something external coloring the coat. Yeah. So I started researching the species and there's a lot about the family of horseshoe bats, the family Rhinolophidae. And the CNN article that sent me on this journey generally, like I said, refers to Chinese horseshoe bats without naming a specific species. And there was a point made about trying not to demonize a particular species Mm -hmm. because now there's this push that people in China are asking to have bats removed from eaves and everything. And people are taking bat phobic measures because of the association with this virus. Yeah. But the Chinese Rufus horseshoe bat, (laughs) like Other horseshoe bats is a really great disease reservoir for SARS-related coronaviruses. So 30 of the 45 SARS-related coronaviruses detected in horseshoe bats between 2003 and 2018 were in the species the Chinese Rufus horseshoe bat. Oh, wow. 30 out of 40, you said. 30 out of 45. Okay. And then there were only two additional SARS-related coronaviruses detected in other families of bats. So that means that horseshoe bats account for 45 of the 47 detected SARS-related coronaviruses in all bats between 2003 and 2018. Gotcha. So when they fly, these bats have a peak 
body temperature that mimics a fever, Mm -hmm. says Andrew Cunningham, professor of wildlife epidemiology at the Zoological Society of London. Again, I'm reading from this CNN article. It happens at least twice a day with bats when they fly out to feed and when they return to roost. And so the pathogens that have evolved in bats have evolved to withstand these peaks of body temperature. I'm not a virologist. I'm not. Again, I can point you to another person with my last name who's better at this type of stuff than me. But a fever is a defense mechanism where the body temperature rises and it kills Mm -hmm. the virus. But a virus that has evolved in bats where the temperature fluctuates and mimics a fever Mm -hmm. will probably not be as affected by higher body temperatures. So that seems to be part of what is so bad about this. Mm -hmm. Once again, hashtag don't blame the bat. And also hashtag deal with the current reality, but then also deal with everything else in the world. Right. So let's just talk about the actual bat and what they're all about. Yeah, I want to know. Let's celebrate. I've gotten all the negativity out of the way. I feel like I've said it. I feel like I can leave it behind now. Set it and forget it. We were mentioning before about our mega bats and uh-huh. our micro bats. Mega bats can be called fruit bats, old world fruit bats. Hey, Brent. <laughs> hey, Brent. <laughs> Or flying foxes, which are all terms that we've talked about before. Uh So megabats can be big, up to 3.2 pounds, wingspans up to 5.6 feet. They're like the football-sized, that's my standard unit of measure now for a winged creature. Is it bigger than a football? Yeah. They're the ones that like are a little smaller than a football, but they're Mm -hmm. the big bats that we think of as being big bats, right? Mm -hmm. They are obligate frugivores, and they do not use echolocation. Right. Then we have the microbats. The horseshoe bat is among the microbats. Mm-hmm. They are not obligate frugivores. They include the family Rhinolophidae, are horseshoe bats. There are at least 18 other microbat families. The horseshoe bats are insectivores. They feed only on insects. Most microbats feed on insects, but there are three vampire microbat species. Mm -hmm. Microbats use echolocation. So the horseshoe bat, because it's a microbat, it uses echolocation. Right. Horseshoe bats are found in the old world, mostly tropical, subtropical areas like Africa, Asia, Europe, and Oceania. Mm -hmm. Ours, again, the Chinese rufous horseshoe bat is just in China. Okay. Horseshoe bats are small to medium microbats. They're between like one and a half inch to four inch in body length, forearm length, one to three inches, and weigh between like an eighth of an ounce and a full ounce. Okay. <laughs> so light. They're very micro. They're very micro. I mean, less than an ounce. That's insane. I know. My Most of my poops are way more than an ounce. Yeah, you don't have any micro poops. You only have mega poops. That's an understatement. They have mammary glands on their chest. Me too! Well, the adult females typically have two teat-like projections on their abdomens. (laughs) They're called pubic nipples or false nipples. And they're not connected to the mammary glands. And part of it is that the babies hold on to them just to like hold on to them. Oh, so they're like little bat hooks. Yeah, little bat hooks. And some of the men have false nipples in their armpits, which is a turn off for the record. I have some skin tags in my armpits. I guess that's very similar. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing. I can relate. You might be a male micro bat. My mother's lied to me all these years. So the horseshoe bats 
have this really intense nose system, again, for their echolocation. Okay. And the term horseshoe bat comes from their nose because on the very bottom of the nose leaf structure, there's a horseshoe shape. So like the part closest to their mouth, it's kind of like uh, comes out on either side and kind of hooks up. Almost like a super curly mustache. Oh, cute. Like if you took the mustache and you curled it up and it kind of like went to the points, like with a mustache wax, maybe. I picture like a plump oil baron from like the early 20th century, the kind of mustache he would have. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly what it's like. Okay. This nose leaf is what it's called. The leaf-like protuberance on their nose. It has a lot of parts. So (laughs) the lancet is the triangle pointed pocket and it points up between the nose. So it's kind of like points skyward. And then there's the cella, which is a flat ridge-like structure at the center of the nose. Mm-hmm. that points out perpendicular to the head. So if you take your hand, this is a fun activity to do at home, everybody. Okay. Because you should be at home because you should be self-isolating. And you kind of put your hand together so like it's flat, mm-hmm. like all your fingers are next to each other. Mm-hmm. And then you bring it up to your face and you put your thumb right on your nose. Okay. That's kind of the cella, okay? And then the lancet is like up where your fingers are. Okay. Because it points up between the bat's eyes. So does it, is it like a flat protuberance out like my hand is right now? Almost like a fin, like a fin kind of coming off of my face? Yes. Okay. Weird. It is. It's helpful for the sake of echolocation. Mm. If you think of it, it really separates out. It's like a very clear filter between like right and left. It like further separates the sound and gives you a stereo image. Oh, cool. Oh, I've never considered that. Yeah. I mean, I know echolocation is a means of kind of spatially orienting yourself between like you and your food maybe. Um, But I've never thought about the need to have that, as you said, in stereo. But that makes perfect sense. Yeah. The echolocation is really interesting. It's crazy. They use echolocation to navigate and capture their prey. Mm -hmm. It's pretty sophisticated compared to other bat groups. They use a single frequency echolocation versus a frequency modulated echolocation. And they have a high duty cycle. Me too. (laughs) Well, in their case, it means that sound production composes more than 30% of their total time, which leads me to wonder, what is it that's consuming more than 30% of your time, Meredith? Well, clearly the thing that leads to optimum pooping, which is optimal eating. Because I got a lot of time for that these days. Mazel tov. <laughs> the high-duty cycle helps them distinguish prey items based on size, and they prefer a high frequency. Does that correlate to something bigger? My guess, understanding how sound works, mm-hmm. high frequencies have a tendency to beam. Okay. Whereas low frequencies are very diffuse and have a tendency to scatter. Okay. So a higher frequency would be able to give you a finer resolution, I mm-hmm. would imagine. Okay. I don't know about that in specific with bats. And I'm sure that some of my teachers somewhere are screaming into the void <laughs> at me not specifically remembering the details of this. But that's the general concept. Okay. And the nose leaf is, it kind of acts like a parabolic reflector. It aims the sound forward, and it also shields the ears from the source of the sound. Okay. So it's kind of like this cone projecting the sound out away from the ear, 
And then the sound reflects back off of the object and comes back into the ear. And the bat knows from the delay in the time from the signal it creates to the signal it receives Mm -hmm. how far away the object is. That's the premise of sonar and also radar, too, is that it transmits a signal. The signal reflects off of an object and then Mm -hmm. it receives the signal. And the bat's doing this organically. You know, we can do that with machines, but the bat evolved to do that. Mm Mm-hmm. Their outer ear lacks a tragus. Oh, that's the little triangular thing that ladies like to get pierced. Right. Like it looks like it's almost like an ear flap that yes. close. Yeah. And they have a conspicuous anti-tragus though, which is like on the <laughs> other side of the lobe. It's like the response to the tragus. Like if you shove your finger in your earlobe and you touch the tragus with the flesh of your finger, uh-huh. the nail of your finger is touching your anti-tragus. Okay. What a funny uh, diode that we just learned about yeah tragus and the anti-tragus yeah it all helps in echolocation yeah and then their cochlea which is the inner ear is Mm -hmm. very well developed they can detect doppler shifted echoes which allows them to produce and receive sound simultaneously and their ears can move independently of one another in a flickering motion that's characteristic of the family and kitty cats when they do that their head moves side to side too (laughs) cute oh which you can do move like a bat move like a bat do the bat dance you can hold one hand on the front of your face like it's <laughs> a cella and then you can do the one ear and then you kind of have to turn sideways a little bit <laughs> so that they can't see your other that's the bat greeting you wave with your ear as you kind of skitter your head around the horseshoe bat greeting let, let me take a picture of the screen so you can put this up on social media okay okay great yeah with my jeans hanging in the background on the wall I love your pants art. Thanks. So that's kind of the bulk of my information about horseshoe bats. They're used in medicine and all these other interfaces with humans where they wouldn't normally. And again, it's this kind of like wet market of these animals on top of each other that is mixing things in new ways. But I thought it was interesting that there's been all this talk about these bats recently to actually kind of dive into this and read about it and see that it's this one particular family of bat seems to be the source of a lot of these SARS related coronaviruses Mm -hmm. that have caused huge outbreaks in humans. And I think it's kind of interesting that this specific species seems to have more 30. I think the next highest one was eight Mm. in one species. I guess it just leads me to a lot of questions about the actual intricacies of the bat. Like, why are these viruses so specific to bats and humans? And why is this one bat species so prolific in the creation of these, you know, disease reservoir virus moments? Yeah. And I think that one of the questions there is, is that because it's interfacing with humans in a different way or more frequently than other bat species through the trade of animals? is that that seems to be why the pangolins involved in all of this potentially it was an interesting little dive for me and it was a fun way for me to combine my raging anxiety at this yeah. moment yeah with the kind of fun and excitement of the bat so you know if you want to learn more about bats do it that's my message i like it i appreciate that i love the idea of taking you know, taking some ownership over your anxiety and being like, okay, I'm going to confront this head on and I'm going to make something good of it. I'm going to create. 
out of it. That was definitely my goal. Did you come across anything, and maybe you kind of alluded to this, how are these bats used? Like, what is the point of contact, or what is the reason of contact? Because I know with, like, pangolins, their scales are used in certain traditional medicine practices, and also their meat is eaten. So that's that point of interaction. Is it a similar thing with bats that they're used, like, for food and medicinally? Well, microbats aren't hunted in the same way that megabats are. Right. Just less meat. <laughs> yeah, I mean less meat, less than an ounce of of animal, you right. know, how much meat is that really? Probably very little. It doesn't seem that this specific species is hunted for meat. Okay. There's a group of people in Northeast India that use the flesh of the horseshoe bat to treat asthma. Mm. People prepare bat oil where the dead bats are rolled up and placed in tightly sealed jars of mustard oil. You know it's ready when it gives off a distinct and unpleasant smell. (laughs) Yep. There's traditional medicinal uses of bat oils, including removing earbugs, reported to be millipedes that crawl into one's ear and not the brain, which is possibly a traditional explanation of migraines. Okay. Wow. Possible treatment for baldness, partial paralysis. There's anecdotal reports of horseshoe bats being used in potions to treat mental illness. In Vietnam, a pharmaceutical company reported using... 50,000 kilograms of horseshoe bat guano every year for medicinal use. Wow. All right. So it's that kind of stuff. I gotcha. That very yeah, much medicine. answered my question. <laughs> oh, millipedes. Yeah. I was reading from the Wikipedia article. Again, those are general horseshoe bats. That's the family okay. of horseshoe bats. Rhino Lafaday. Does the rhino come from the fact that it looks like they've got like a rhino horn because of their like face leaf? I would imagine that it's just the root of rhino, like the nose, mm-hmm. you know? So I'm sure that they're named that way because of the nose because it is so distinctive. Yes. The nose yeah. leaf. It's kind of like when you take the tip of your nose and you lift it up. Yeah. Do I look like a scary little bat? You do look like a scary little bat. You ready to get some insects, Meredith? It's dinner time. Final question. Do you Did you watch Wienerville when you were little, that show on Nickelodeon? No, I don't know what that is. Oh, gosh, it was so bizarre. But they used to play, like, old, old cartoons, like, from the 60s. And there was a cartoon called Batfink. And it was, like, this, like, little superhero bat. I remember Batfink. Yeah. I kind of want to look up Batfink now. What's the deal with Batfink? I don't know. And another one they used to show on there was Chilly Willy the Penguin. It's like, I'm Chilly Willy the Penguin. Ah, eat, a chew. <laughs> cool. Yeah. <laughs> Anywho. Great work, Mike. I love that Thanks. bat journey. Yeah, I think it was pretty fun. Like everything now, it took a dive through my own mortality. Yep. As well as the mortality of those around me. Mm-hmm. But it, you know, also then circled back to just fun animal knowledge. There's no, we don't really know about their mating practices. I'm sorry. I know that disappoints you. Like their romance. Yeah. We don't know anything about bat romance. It's okay. But we do know how to make bat oil. We do. At least there's that. All right. All right. Break time. Break. Thanks so much for coming to the mall with me today, Sally Sloth. I really needed a girl's day out. You're telling me, Andrea Anteater. I got so bored just hanging out all the time. Praying host to all that algae and those needy flies gets so exhausting, you know? Against my nature, sometimes I just want to feel like a fancy girl sloth about town. Girl, I totally get it. Say, Sally, how much time do we have before our lunch reservation at the Rainforest Cafe? Oh, I don't know, Andrea. Maybe a half hour or so? Where should we go to kill the time? Hmm. Oh, I have an idea. 
Why don't we check out the new Brand Clubby Superstore? Andrea, why didn't you tell me that they had opened? I would have run <laughs> there right away. Look, Look at, at all these amazing products. Oh, Sally, would you just look at these beautiful human skins for pangolins? Don't you think I'd just be ravishing in this skin a former socialite? The skin is so soft and well-preserved. Um, Andrea, not to be pedantic here, but last time I checked, you aren't a pangolin. Uh, Sally, I think you are a horse with all of your naysaying. Does the word Zanartha ring a bell to you? I'm close enough. As if, Andrea. I think you're more in the market for a trip to the Fleek Fox eyebrow threading for small mammals counter. I think you could really use a touch-up. Uh, okay, Sally. And then after that, we can go visit Gerald A. at the Crow's Wing eye cream counter. Your eyes could really use some work. Are you getting enough sleep? Andrea, you bitch. Bite your tongue. Haha, <laughs> joke's on you, Sally. I don't have any teeth. Ha ha ha! Animal jokes! Ha ha ha! Are always funny! Ha 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 ha! Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Animal Fan Club Comedy Hour. First up tonight, Penguin Poundstone! Hey, how you doing, everybody? Alright! Why should you always listen to porcupines? They have a lot of good points! What do you call a crocodile that's always picking fights? An instigator! What do you call a bear with no ears? B! Alright, you guys have been great! Thanks for coming out tonight! I'm just gonna gonna leave the stage and set it up for our next great comic, Patton Ocelot! Give it up for Patton, everybody! Thank you! Thank you! Thank you! What do you call a magic dog? A labracadabrador! Why does a dog have so many friends? They wag their tails instead of their tongues! How many tickles does it take to make an octopus laugh? Ten tickles. Thanks, everybody. I'm Pat and Ocelot. That was Penguin Poundstone. Thanks for coming out. Give yourselves a claw. Give yourselves a claw. Flap your wings. Good night. Ha ha ha, animal jokes, ha ha ha, are always funny, ha 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 ha. we, Texana who, Texana me. Kingdom. Animalia. Yeah, we like them a little bit. Phylum. Arthropoda. They're inside out, no bones within. Class. Insecta. Antenna in the air like you just don't care. Order. Lipodipara. Metamorphosis is the game. Family. Papillonidae, large, colorful butterflies. Genus. Papilio, swallow-tailed beauties. Species. Papilio, polyzenus. They are stinky. It's the eastern black swallowtail. 
Oh, this is really exciting, Meredith. Yeah, Eastern Black Swallowtail. So with all these like spring vibes going on outside, I have to say when it's a sunny day, my mood is just infinitely better. Even though I'm not like outside in the sun, it's just so nice to have blue skies and chirpy birds and all of those things. So I was like having springtime memories. So my grandma in her backyard on the west side of Cincinnati used to have these trees that um, would be covered in these black and white squishy little caterpillars. And us being little kids, of course, we'd like, oh, fuck with them. But then we quickly found out that these things would like exude like a stinky smell. Oh. So you'd get covered with this like stuff that they would like squirt on you that smelled really bad. Gross. It didn't smell like poop or like rotting. It was just kind of this like acrid, kind of like herbaceous, gross smell that came from these caterpillars. So we quickly learned to stay away from them. So I looked, I literally typed into Google. I was like, what are those stinky caterpillars? And I eventually followed the path all the way to the Eastern Black Swallowtail. And we probably all know what these look like because they're all over North America. They're like everywhere. Um, so pretty much every part. So they're the state creature or the state creature. They're the state butterfly of both Oklahoma and New Jersey, just to give you a sense of their range. Wow. They're pretty much all over the United States, but I think I did read that they're more prominent east of the Rockies. Meredith, I looked up an image of this caterpillar. So it's, it's green with like black and yellow stripes. Yep. Mm -hmm. And it's not fuzzy. It's not a fuzzy caterpillar. Nope. It's just kind of squishy. Because I know from touching them, they're squishy. Cool. Yeah. They look cute. They're cool. They're cool. And so I thought this was funny because we've never really had, I guess, like a two-in-one animal before. Because we get to talk about them as caterpillars and then also as butterflies, which is fun. Uh Uh-huh. That is fun. I've never thought about that. They're a two for one. So let's talk about why they are stinky. So this is fun. So this is um, a trait of these particular swallowtail butterflies. So at the family level, we're into the swallowtails. Papillonidae. The French word for butterfly being papillon. 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 So if you look at certain pictures of these things, and you may have noticed this out in the wild if you spend any time fucking with caterpillars at any point in your life. So when you mess with them, they essentially will like stick out what looks like a forked tongue, which is kind of imitative of a snake, right? And some species actually even have like big fake false eyes. And so when they stick these tongues out, which are called osmetarium, they actually look like snakes because you've got these false eyes on the top of the head and then a forked tongue. So again, some of that aposmatic signaling, stay the F away. Yeah. And so these guys kind of like absorb toxins. So if a bird were to come pick them up, aside from getting covered in that stinky fluid that they excrete, they also taste really bad to birds. I would bet. The osmetarium is found on these swallowtail caterpillars or the pupae, I should say. The osmetarium is found on the pupae of the swallowtail caterpillars. Yes. Well, the caterpillars are the pupae of the butterfly. The pupae of, okay. What will eventually of become the butterfly. The swallowtail butterfly. Yes. The eastern black swallowtail. Whew. I know. It's a lot. I was, I was, there was a lot to kind of like get through here. You'll often find in caterpillar form and in butterfly form, you'll see these guys hanging out on different herbs that are relatives of the carrot family. So you'll see them on like parsley. You'll see them on dill plants or on 
fennel, Queen Anne's lace, all these things. So there's, we actually have some photos that my dad took that he submitted to the Montgomery um, photo contest years ago. Oh. Yeah, he cut some dill out of the garden that happened to be like teeming with these caterpillars and kind of put it on a white background and sent that in. I forget if he won anything for it, but um, it's a very cool picture, but they're just doing what they do best, hanging out on some carrot relatives, chomping down, loving on that dill. Yum, yum, yum. So because they love these like common garden features like dill and carrots and parsley and things like that, some people associate them with being pests, but they're not like locusts. They're not decimating crops. They just kind of take what they need. They don't really have that much of an impact. That's good. Let them do their thing because ultimately you want butterflies. Everybody loves a butterfly. Yeah, totally. I mean, they're pollinators. They're they're good. They mean that, again, like biodiversity in your garden is good and in your yard. So you want to attract yeah. butterflies flies it's a good thing they're not pests hashtag not all pests hashtag not all pests and also it's kind of nice i feel reassured that they have good taste i mean who doesn't love a nice dill moment I mean, or right? a parsley moment Ugh. or a carrot moment you know all of these things i love and they're actually um called like one of their aka's is the parsley swallowtail or the parsley worm when they're in their ca- caterpillar form they're called like the parsley worm when they're actually caterpillars they're not worms i've been cooking with parsley lately yeah it's great i love parsley i love cooking with fresh herbs it's just the best so these plants so in addition to the caterpillars liking to feed on them they're also the odor of them like say you're flying around as a sweet little butterfly and you smell delicious dill you're like ooh, that smells like a place i would like to oviposit my eggs because oviposition they're attracted to these plants to position their ovies. They have ovipositors then? You know, I didn't read anything about their anatomy. I would assume yes. If they're engaging in oviposition, I would assume they probably have ovipositors. I recently rewatched Aliens mm-hmm. and they show the queen alien and she has a pretty serious ovipositor <laughs> situation going on. <laughs> I can't watch that stuff. I'm so squeamish. Sigourney Weaver's great. Yeah. I The one thing I do remember about that movie is I was like, I saw it when I was really little and I was intrigued by her underwear because you could kind of see the top of her butt crack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sounds like her. There's also very intense lighting moments in it. Oh, okay. Has something going for it. It's a great movie. I was dating this dude when I was in college who was in art school and we were watching the movie and he was saying how the visual style was very rapacious, which I thought was some sort of art word and just kind of like played along like an idiot uh-huh. and a few weeks later realized that they were making fun of their friend who had once said rapacious instead of repetitious <laughs> and that I was just trying to be like oh yeah rapacious is totally like a serious art word that means something very specific rapacious rapacious I was like maybe so they I... mean rapacious but I don't know what rapacious <laughs> means so that movie's very rapacious speaking of rapacious so what's interesting is that the, the color of the chrysalis, so now we're moving into kind of the intermediate stage, the liminal stage between caterpillar and butterfly is the time they spend in their chrysalis. Okay. And so the color of the chrysalis is actually determined somehow genetically by the surrounding color of where the chrysalis is located. Somehow, oh. by some genetic trick, it blends itself into its surroundings. Like camouflage, chrysalis camo. Exactly, but I just don't know what that process is, or I can't really say much more as to how, sound scientifically how that happens. But cool, uh-huh. nonetheless. 
Soup's cool. Yeah. So these these guys are actually all in chrysalises right now. The butterflies themselves will emerge in like mid May. Hopefully, like oh. like we will. So maybe we'll all be butterflies in mid May and emerge from our chrysalis homes, <sighs> chrysalis lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> Meredith, we've both found ways to really confront this. And for mine, it's researching like the origin and everything. And for yours, it's just imagining that this is the chrysalis stage that we're all in, that before this, we were all caterpillars. Yes. Now we're in the chrysalis and ideally we emerge in mid-May just or sooner. spreading our beautiful black wings. If I were to emerge in mid-May, when I emerge as a lady butterfly, I'm going to have black wings that have very two pale yellow series of dots on either wing. And then in between those yellow dots, there will be a little bit of blue. Okay. Whereas when you emerge as a male oh. butterfly, Ooh. you're going to emerge with much brighter rows of yellow spots. And then in between your yellow spots, it's a much paler blue going on. So you're like a yellow and black and I'm like a yellow and blue with more yellow? You're, well, we're both predominantly black, but um, the major color on me is going to be blue. It almost looks like blue and white because the yellow is so pale. Whereas your predominant color is going to be yellow. Fuck yeah. 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 That's our dorsal surface. So that's the back of the wing. Whereas when we both emerge and we put our wings up, the ventral surfaces will be pretty much identical. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, So So there's the ventral, our front, the ventral surface Mm -hmm. looks very similar between the sexes. Right. But the dorsal surface is where the The sexual dimorphism. dimorphism. Yes, that's exactly the the word we were going to invoke here. That's perfect. And actually, the women are a little bit larger as well. So I'm going to come out bigger than you after all of this, Mike. Ooh, wow. That's (laughs) remarkable, considering how much smaller than me you were when this all began. A lot's happening. A lot of transformation is happening right now under lockdown. This is interesting, and this is another fun um, vocab term that we might come across in the future if we haven't already. It's this idea of Batesian mimicry. So it's named after this guy with the last name of Bates. I forget what his first name is. I want to say it was like Alfred or Albert. Batesian mimicry is when you essentially you're a a harmless animal that is mimicking an animal that is harmful. Oh. The coloring that you see on particularly the female black swallowtails are mimicking the blue swallowtail, which is poisonous. So a species might see a lady with her little blue spots on the back and be like, ooh, that's that one poisonous butterfly. Something's telling me to like stay way the F away from that lady. Wow. Yeah. So that's Batesian mimicry. And I'm sure we'll come across that again at some other point. That's so interesting. That's a, a trait that's evolved in one animal because of the existence of another. Right. Like, like, all these random paths of evolution. But these black butterflies just happen to be living near these blue butterflies. Mm-hmm. And so the black butterflies that kind of changed it to have these blue characteristics resembled the blue butterflies enough that the predators were like, we're not going to fuck with that. Yeah. And so then the non-blue ones just selected themselves out. You know what I mean? Yeah, in a sense. And like even the men. So remember, it's only the women that generally have the blue, but there are some men out there who have even learned in quotation marks to mimic the female members of their species. So you'll even see males with 
the blue markings. So if you're out and about and you're like, ooh, I'm going to go impress my friends and like sex these butterflies, you could be wrong because it could just be a man posing as a female who is also posing as this poisonous butterfly that birds know to stay away from. It just sounds like some drag queens I know. I know. You know, (laughs) it's like a man as a woman as a woman playing a man as a man, but also a butterfly. Yeah, it's just cross-species gender performance. It's great. Yeah, I love it. It's happening everywhere, folks. So another vocab word that I had to look up, but like, I think I could have figured it out on my own had I just thought about it. It's this idea of intersexual competition. So what this means is it's just a fancy term for saying that males compete with one another for mates. Intersexual. Intersexual competition. So Uh competition within the sex to attract the females. So What this results in, another vocab word that we might come across, this is something that often applies to birds, but it's this concept of what's called lek mating. And lek is like the Swedish word for play and probably a bookcase. Nice. (laughs) So essentially (laughs) lek mating consists of males congregated. They're all gathered and essentially they're like gathered in the lek arena. So they all go to a single place to have like a lady then come like pick them up or pick them out or choose them tonight at the lek arena yes so i i kind of just pictured this as like a a club in paris or something like there's just a bunch of dudes just all out on a floor just like flexing and trying to look hot and then the ladies come in and they get to take their pick I was thinking of a voice to do, and I had a German accent, but then yes. I realized that the Germans are more beetles. The French are definitely the butterflies. Oh, you know? yeah. papillon, baby. The metamorphosis and everything, their period of change where mm-hmm. they cocoon into themselves with nothing but brie and a baguette <laughs> and a cigarette. What more do you need? That sounds amazing right now. The sublime art of the French. <laughs> and then they emerge as the butterfly. Yes. To go to the... Lec Arena and just dance. <laughs> Allons-y a la Lec Arena. <laughs> Essentially, I think in this case, like the Lec site or the lecking happens in this case where the the butterflies, essentially the male butterflies are often at like a higher altitude, not really altitude, but they're like, they're not dwelling on the ground. They're like higher up um, and the women sure. kind of come up to them, like situated in a tree or something. And so <laughs> this is where I have to get into one more vocab. I swear this is the last one. So the male swallowtails are what's called protandrous, meaning that they emerge from their chrysalises before the women. And it's said that the way that they kind of excel in finding a mate is having the best territory. So it's that early bird gets the worm concept. So these guys come out. So the sooner you can get out of that chrysalis, the sooner you can secure your territory. And they secure territories based on female preference. So they go to places that would hopefully attract a lot of females, if that makes sense. And how this uh, relates to like the lecking site and all of that, I'm not entirely sure. The article was a little bit scant on that information. Essentially, it's all determined by territory. Ladies like to visit a certain territory and then get it on the dudes there. Okay. Yes. Protandrous. Yes. Is the men emerge before the ladies to establish 
an area. Right. I don't think protandry necessarily goes as far as saying that they come out early to secure territory. It's just that they come out earlier than women. Okay. So they're protandrous. So they come out earlier than the women. Yes. They're... Potandry allows them to establish an area early, which attracts the most mates. Okay. Yeah. And then we have the lecking arena. Right. What exactly is the definition of lek? So I think a lek is the aggregation of those guys. So maybe the lek is what forms, say, when a number of dudes that have emerged from their chrysalis kind of find this advantageous spot and they all establish their territories around that historically advantageous spot. And then that becomes like the Lekking Arena (laughs) is that advantageous spot that the early risers have been able to secure. Okay, so the Lek is just kind of the general... It's the aggregation uh, of... It's the aggregation, like wherever two or more of you are gathered in (laughs) In my my name, name. I am there. It's the sort of Lekking Arena sort of situation. Yes. Like, yeah, no, that's... Where all the lecking happens. Right. And lecking is the the display of prowess, dominance, or whatever. I see. It's okay. Yeah. So, okay. So the lecking is like another word for peacocking, maybe. Yeah. Peacocking is perfect. This term is often applied to birds. So I think in the Wikipedia article, it showed these like quails or something. One of those day things and it just showed a bunch of males like showing their feathers like on full display all out in a field together does that make sense like so they're displaying their plumage which is the way they attract a mate but they're all doing it kind of in the same quote-unquote arena yeah you could call that a lecking arena yes you could say that a singles bar is kind of like the lecking arena is the singles bar of the butterfly world yes or Maybe better is that the single bar is the lecking arena of the human world. Right. Where people are displaying whatever they want to display. You know, it's the local watering hole. There's food. Yes. Presumably. Yes. Snacks. At at the very least, a snack. Right. Right. Beverages. It's an advantageous location. Exactly. you can perform your display of dominance. Right. And those who get there early have like, you know, you can get the best table or like the most prominent seat or like whatever. I don't know how this works. But butterflies probably don't sit down. No. They do like to, um, depending on if they need to get warmer or cooler, they'll spend more time perching if they need to soak up more sun rays, for instance. Uh Or when they're too hot or like on hot days, you'll see them fluttering about a bit more because they don't need to sit for as long. That's interesting. Yeah. They regulate their body temperature that way. Right. cool. Exactly. Do you think they like mozzarella sticks? I don't know. I have never asked one. I know my, the person I snagged through my lecking. I don't know how far I can extend this metaphor. Anthony likes mozzarella sticks. The person who I snagged through lecking is great. I love that for you. I love that that's your journey. Yeah, all that lecking that was Sonata Theory. (laughs) That lecking arena that was Sonata Theory. (laughs) Okay. Advantageous, to say the least. What a niche lecking arena. Dr. Khan's Sonata Theory class. That's really funny. All to a soundtrack of Mozart opera overtures. Why are you not rolling in the aisles laughing? This is high comedy. (laughs) That was Zach's quote from him. I wasn't in that class. But Zach was like, I can't believe he actually said this today. It was amazing. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We used to have all kinds of inside jokes. So, yeah, that's our um, swallowtail beauty, the eastern black swallowtail butterfly. 
That was really great. What were the other vocab words? We had... Okay, so we'll start from the osmotarium. So that's like the little fork-like tongue thing that kind of exudes stinkiness as a means to repel predators or young children, (laughs) in my case. Gross. Batesian mimicry. Batesian mimicry. So mimicking a poisonous creature when you yourself are not. Right. So as to appear poisonous. We've got intersexual competition. Intrasexual, I should say. Competition. So males competing with one another for mates. Protandrous. So emerging before the women. Wow. And yeah, lek mating. So that's that's that. Yeah, great. Well, um, I guess let's take a break. Let's do it. Golly gee, Stephanie. We've had a tough week here, being sponges, living on this coral. That's the truth, Ruth. Even though we don't have nervous systems, my nerves are fried. Deaf stuff. I think we've deserved a spa-cation at Exfoliate, a spa for sponges. Forsooth, Ruth. I'm going to start with an ostia microblading to rejuvenate the channels through my mesohill. I'm going for a myocyte reflexology healing session. Maybe I'll do the hydropeptide stem cell treatment for my flagellum. Or maybe some nanoneedling on my pinacocyte. Maybe a spicule alignment. I just love all the possibilities at Exfoliate, a spa for sponges. That's truth, Ruth. And since each location is individually owned and operated, they all have special treatments unique to each spa site. Splendidly, Stephanie. And those are on top of the standard treatments available at each location, some of which we just talked about. I've been thinking about opening my own location since the creatures at Brand Clubby offer such a reasonable franchise agreement, not to mention the support and quality brand recognition that Brand Clubby customers enjoy. Oh, do that next week, Steph. First, our traditional laser sclerocyte resurfacing. What you sniffing about there, Mike? It smells like oats, Meredith. Oh, yeah. Ooh, it does smell like oats. What's going on? I think we're back in the feed bag. Oh, yeah. That explains it. Mm-hmm. We've got some questions here. The first of which is, Chris from Temecula asks, what is the deal with chihuahuas? <sighs> Ooh. Okay. This is a big one. This is a big one. I don't want to, like, offend anybody here. I'm just going to go out there and say, I don't know what the deal is with chihuahuas. Yeah. Is it a dog I would ever pick for myself? Definitely not. Yeah. I think that in general, I stand for all creatures of the Canis lupus species generally. Wolves. Yes. The, the gray wolf and the domesticated dogs. Mm-hmm. But I just don't know that I've ever met a chihuahua that I've actually liked because none of them have gotten along with me. Right. They're all fairly high maintenance and they all seem to be having some sort of constant crisis, which like I get. But, you know, don't make your problems my problems, chihuahua. And, you know, part of the live and let live ethos is to let creatures be that way and to just not engage with them. Right. So I've never really cared to learn, like, what the deal is with chihuahuas because I just never have met one that's been the type of dog I want to spend time with. Right. It's just they, they're very, um, it's like they're trying to keep you at a, at a 
at a leg and paws distance. Like they're, they're not really doing a lot to invite you in because they're like always looking at you like they're terrified of you. And a lot of them are often shaking in addition to that. So nothing about that is saying, please cuddle me. And they, like you said, I think you said it well, saying they're always like in the middle of a crisis. And generally when somebody's like in the middle of a crisis and I don't know them, I'm like, I'm just gonna stay away from that because they probably don't want me getting on, all up in their vibe. So I just don't know how to approach a chihuahua. Maybe that's part of it. I think that chihuahua owners tend to like them because they're so loyal, I feel. And they're very, they like to be held and they like to cuddle. They like close contact and they find that comforting. Okay. And I feel like generally the owners of chihuahuas are attracted to that quality in the chihuahua. All right. Fair. So I think that that's pleasant and I mean it's a species there's an iconic Taco Bell Chihuahua there's a famous Chihuahua of note you know what I mean like I'm not trying to say that they have no place in the world or that there's not a corner of my heart maybe in cockle region maybe in the sub cockle (laughs) region I'm not sure where there is a tiny little corner of my heart that beats for Chihuahuas but I don't know that it's anywhere near as large as the portion of my heart that beats for Labradors or (laughs) you know many of the other species of dogs totally subspecies breeds so I guess the official position here would be that like we respect them as doggos um are they the doggos for us and are we the humans for them probably not Ding 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 ding. ding. All right. Okay, we have a mate pair feed upon. I do love these. Capybara, harpy eagle. Okay. Tasmanian devil. Whoa. Okay, say those again. So we've got a capybara. Capybara, a harpy eagle. A harpy eagle. And a Tasmanian devil. Wow. What a spread. I think I'm going to start with feed upon the Tasmanian devil. Okay. Mostly because they're not known for being like super nice and friendly. And I'd be worried about like losing any number of appendages and parts of my body by trying to engage in relations with them. Sure. You know, I don't know any Tasmanian devils, but from what I know about them, they can be pretty vicious and they're just like obligate carnivores. And I kind of say like eat or be eaten with these guys. Yeah, I think that's fair. I was initially thinking that it might be fun to mate with the Tasmanian devil just because it's probably fucking crazy. Yeah. Literally crazy fucking. Uh-huh. I don't know that that's actually the right answer for me for a couple reasons. But I think that I think that I would also feed upon the Tasmanian devil. The close second is capybara. I think that capybara meat is probably very delicious, and it's kind of a big creature, and it's like a little yeah. chubby, and it just kind of is like a big rodent, you know? I think they're actually related to guinea pigs, and people do eat guinea pigs. There's probably some good reasoning there. But maybe that's the, all the more reason to feed upon the Tasmanian devil is, you know, take a walk on the wild side. I'm sure out there there's a t-shirt with a Tasmanian devil on it that says, take a walk on the wild side. You know it's true. I'm sure it is. So then, I guess moving onwards, now we have the capybara and the harpy eagle, and we have mate and pair. I'm feeling very strongly that I would like to pair with the capybara because they just, they're so peaceful and they're so gentle and I like that they're like herbivores and they just kind of hang out and they're not there to like cause any waves. They just seem like a very pleasant mate. Like I could see myself settling down with the capybara. I feel the same way and I have to say that's kind of what's driving my other choices. Right. I have a strong desire to pair with the capybara. 
are. They're so, with their little hooves. I mean, how can you resist? I would love to wake up to little hooves every day. Do they have hooves? Are they a hoofed rodent? They have hooves. Whoa. Yeah, they're the largest rodent and they have little hooves. It's really cute. Ugh, that's adorable. Yeah. So then that leaves us to be mating with the harpy eagle. Do you see this picture of it with the kind of like plumage around? It's like, phew, like that. It makes me think of the bird lady from Kids in the Hall. Yeah. Because it just looks like that would, I mean, I, I can't say that I want to mate with that, but I think the passion with which I want to pair with the capybara is kind of forcing me, it's forcing my hand. Well, here's what I have to say about that, Meredith, is that you could decide to feed upon the harpy eagle and mate with the Tasmanian devil, but here's what I have to say. I feel like the Tasmanian devil will be more nourishing, and several of the qualities that the Tasmanian devil has that I'm curious about, I feel like the harpy eagle also possesses, like the predatory nature, you know, like it would probably be crazy like mating with harpy eagle right but then it's like a one and done situation you know right and i maybe i feel like i'm less likely to die with the harpy eagle than i am with the tasmanian devil the harpy eagles are like i was just looking at these pictures there's one sitting on a log with a man and it's like the size of him these things are huge oh my gosh it's insane Harpy eagles are crazy. We have to do them one of these days. Well, we can right now in our answering of the question. Well, so there's the let's answer. Do it. Let's get it answer. on with a harpy eagle. Mate with a harpy eagle, pair with the capybara, feed upon the Tasmanian devil, a fish position. Yes. Oh, fish position. Ding, 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 ding. Good. All right. So let's just get one more question in here. So Tina from Brooklyn asks, if you choose to come back as any animal, what animal would we choose to come back as if we're doing some sort of like reincarnation thing? As much as I love this question, this is a very hard question. Yeah. And I think I'll just go with the first thing that comes to mind and what I've always kind of thought is that I would love to be a house cat. <laughs> I mean, you hang out. I feel like a house cat these days. I just hang out all day inside, eating out of a bowl. Stretching in a beam of sunlight. Stretching in a beam of sunlight, which I do every day with my yoga. So, I mean, I'm just going to go right now. I'm feeling a lot of cat vibes, a lot of indoor cat vibes. I've got that, like, stomach paunch, which I like to call, like, house cat comfortable, you know? Sure. I'm just, I'm halfway there. Well, there you go. Yeah. My answer is, I mean, obviously it's a gray wolf. Yeah. There's no question about that. There's never been any question about that. <laughs> be a gray wolf. That's exactly what I would be. And I'd live in like Montana somewhere. Nice. That you know, just great. like run around. Probably in Canada, actually. Yeah. I'd probably cross the border up into Canada. Oh, yeah. Maybe in like Saskatchewan or something. Great. That's what I'd do. I love that for you. The fish position, I guess, then is I choose a comfortable little house cat. And I choose a gray wolf. Gray wolf. Ding, 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 ding. ding, ding. ding. Well, keep those questions coming. Animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. And stay safe, everybody. Yes. Above all else. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. 
Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal Fan Club.